Alright, what's going on everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Buffalo Beat. My name is Joe Biscalia. Thanks everyone for joining us on the podcast today. As always, my co-host Matthew Fairburn joins me and we'll break down exactly what happened with the Bills 53-man roster going through the the paces of some of the the key decisions that they made obviously there weren't a ton of surprises uh, if you had been paying attention over the last couple of weeks but uh, a couple of jarring things that we need to get into nonetheless so uh Matthew Fairburn uh I know this is how what was it like to kind of I guess watch cut down day from afar and like it was weird because this year they had us in at practice and they don't normally have that. And so we didn't spend the entire day like, you know, trying to figure out who got cut because it was pretty much unveiled for us. But what was it like for you? Kind of like, you know, since you cover the Sabres now full time, what what was it like to just watch watch the madness from afar? I, I, a couple of things. Number one, I think it's nice that they have it set up the way that they do on the calendar now. The You know, in the past you were essentially spending Mm -hmm. your Labor Day weekend, uh, you know, trying to get in touch with agents and piece together the puzzle. And that was in part because of the fourth preseason game would normally be during this week. And then they would, you know, finalize everything after that. So it's nice that they pushed it up and teams sort of get this quasi bye week uh, to, you know, recalibrate and roster shuffle a little bit. But like you said, there weren't, you know, because of the way this team is built and the way, you know, they've constructed their roster, there wasn't a lot that, you know, you felt like you needed to be necessarily glued to. Now, the O.J. Howard release was, you know, something that, you know, you had kind of alluded to uh, throughout camp. And, you know, we spoke about a bit on the podcast after the Broncos game. There was some writing on the wall there that maybe he wasn't fitting in exactly how they hoped. Not a huge, you know, financial miss for them. It, it was not, I, you know, obviously they, mm-hmm. they'd like to not, you know, spend that type of money on somebody who's not going to be on the roster, but not a crippling miss. Uh, something that was easily covered up by a restructure of Deion Dawkins' contract, which he's a guy that, that's going to be a pillar for them anyways. I think the the thing about cut down day now with a team that's this good is that you do recognize that there will be some players that get away that will end up being good players elsewhere. And, you know, that makes those decisions at the bottom of the roster uh, somewhat difficult, I would think, for these guys when they're when they're doing that math, because while there aren't maybe as mm-hmm. many spots open or as much competition at the bottom of that roster, you know, from 40 on down, even from 50 to 53, when you're making those last two or three decisions and you know that you're probably letting go of a player that has the potential to make an impact on an NFL roster, you know, it raises the stakes a little bit on those last few decisions. They they did, in a way, get some flexibility because of the punter situation, you know, to be able to buy themselves a couple of days mm-hmm. and, you know, make those decisions. But, yeah, it wasn't a, a ton of, of intrigue and, and drama over 
the the last few you know spots on the roster the roster was mostly set and they made a, a you know a they drew a line in the sand at tight end right and you know decided not to keep OJ Howard around mm-hmm and probably lost a couple of uh, guys that maybe develop into NFL players down the road. But still, it's a damn good 53-man roster, probably the best one uh, you know we've seen in Buffalo in quite some time. Well, I mean, it, it goes to show that you know most times waivers are often overstated. Like it's like, well, gotta try to sneak that guy onto the practice squad. But with the Bills team being as as talented as they have been, and you know the looming threat that are Joe Shane and Brian Dable with the Giants, like there there was a legitimate chance that a lot of their guys would get scooped. And four of the guys that spent training camp uh, with the Bills wound up getting claimed elsewhere. And four other players who had spent time in Buffalo uh, ended up getting claimed after they. Um, that after they got cut by their respective teams. So in total, eight players that have spent time with the Bills over like the last couple of, of camps wound up getting wound up getting claimed uh, on waivers this past uh, week. So that that just goes to show like how deep this team has developed into. And I want you know a lot of the, a lot of the thing with the fifty three man roster right near the bottom portion, and we'll get into the specifics in just a minute. But like the the bottom of the roster, you almost want to reserve that for depth, for sure, in some areas. Uh, but you want to make sure that you have some guys down there that that could have some starting potential down the line and with, with a lot of development. Um, so those are two kind of important facets. And probably why we saw them make the decision that, uh, that they did in some areas. I mean, you, you brought up O.J. Howard. That was the one that was a surprise to a lot of people that weren't like intently paying attention on Bill's camp. But but there were so many warning signs along the way about O.J. Howard. Really, it, when you looked at his usage, oh, I mean, just from just from the, the first part of it, the eye test, you you watched him move and it's like. That is not a first round player. Like that is uh, like he's humongous. Like he's 6 foot 6, super long arms. You can't miss him over the middle of the field. But once you throw him the ball, it's basically a catch and fall situation. There's not a lot of yards after catch. He doesn't really separate all that well. His blocking was not as as great as uh was advertised. Like he was still a good blocker, don't get me wrong, but there were there were some misses along the way. Um, and it got to the point where he allowed the competition to catch up to him, which is Tommy Sweeney and Quentin Morris, most notably Quentin Morris. And the, the biggest sign that we saw um, against that Broncos game that I think you were alluding to was when Josh Allen was in the game and, you know, Dawson Knox was off with his family um, following the tragic passing of his brother. The, the Bills told us they they told us their tight end depth chart that day. Six snaps, Josh Allen on the field, Quentin Morris out there for five of them, Tommy Sweeney out there for one of them, OJ Howard out there for zero. Um, and so I asked Ken Dorsey after that preseason game, why did OJ Howard not get any time with Josh Allen? And and his response was, Oh, we just didn't call his personnel group. So 
<laughs> so in the time that you are spending all uh, like this is the only series Josh Allen is going to get and you're telling me this guy who's supposedly your your number two tight end is not going to get any a single snap with him in a game setting come on I mean that's just it, the writing was on the wall there the only thing that was really um a a deterrent was the money aspect but at this point when you are Brandon Bean and and you have this Super Bowl window staring you in the face and it's like okay an extra 2 million tacked on to uh, tacked onto this year's salary cap that um, for not having the player on the roster it, you know kind of a tough pill to swallow but it's it's not something that you're going to necessarily lose sleep about when you think to yourself okay well Quentin Morris who has outperformed O.J. Howard basically in every capacity and gives you the flexibility to have a, a primary backup to Reggie Gilliam because he moonlighted at fullback from time to time. You have him under contract for the next two years. Then he's an exclusive rights free agent for the 2024 season. And then he's a restricted free agent for the 2025 season. So that's four years of roster control for a guy that you really like. And then Tommy Sweeney, who had who performed basically on a on a similar level with OJ Howard throughout camp, probably better as a pass catcher during practices. And you have that locker room component where the franchise quarterback absolutely loves him and the rest of the locker room loves him. And and plus OJ Howard doesn't play any special teams. So the writing has been on the wall for forever. They made the right call, you know, to be beholden to a two million dollar uh full base salary guarantee would not have been smart if the if the guy didn't earn it. So, they, you know, they I'm sure they tried to trade him, but as we see um, with him still being a free agent, there was a report that uh, he might be signing with the Bengals, but then the, the Bengals claimed the tight end from the Patriots, Devin Asiasi. Um, if, if I butcher that name, I apologize. But and now that has that talk about O.J. Howard signing there has kind of dissipated. So they, they made the totally right call on, on that position. And, um, and it... It goes to show that this is a, a Super Bowl window for them, and like two million is is a drop in the in, in the bucket for NFL salary caps. Is you know as much money as it is as it sounds, it it it's it's basically nothing to to salary cap perspectives. I often say that that two million dollars <laughs> is like a drop in the bucket, and it it's like absolutely nothing. It's like it's like monopoly money for for them, honestly. Like I like if you're like okay, yeah, I'll I'll take that and and I'll freaking retire. <laughs> but but them, it's like okay, well, well, it's uh, it's just a two million dollar cap hit when the cap is what, it's stupid, stupid large, um, over over two hundred or close to two hundred million. It's full it, disclosure. It, yeah. I do not know if you pronounced the. Patriots tight end's name correctly because I don't think he was active for a single game that I covered of the Patriots. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna look it up. He he certainly did not catch a pass in my recollection, um, but it it actually it that brings up a point that I think ties into this Bills conversation is that I feel like that became a strength of Bill Belichick over the years and it's one that is hard to it's hard to get yourself to the, that point as a general manager as an organization as head decision makers where you're comfortable quickly admitting your mistakes and 
you know, Bill Belichick has made a ton of mistakes and drafting he's made quite a few mistakes because he's been doing this for a long time. Their recent draft history has been extremely poor as evidenced by that, that 2020 class, but he has always been pretty quick to admit mistakes and move on quickly and not make decisions about his team based on what will make his decisions as a general manager look good. And I think that's what Brandon Bean did here. He realized that, yes, cutting O.J. Howard will, you know, call into question whether it was a good signing. Obviously, it was not. But like you said, for a $2 million mistake, you'd be a lot better off admitting that mistake Mm -hmm. and saying, let's have the best players on our team rather than the ones that make your decisions look good. That's a reflection of how comfortable Brandon Bean is now, obviously, in his job, in terms of job security. I don't think that's even a question. When you reach that threshold as a general manager, I do, it, it becomes powerful when you're making decisions like this because you're not worried about saying, oh, man, you know, moving on from a draft pick early when you say it's just not there you know, and and you got to move on, you're going to miss, you're going to sit in that seat long enough, you're going to miss a lot. And being able to recognize those misses as quickly as possible is to your advantage. Because if you let a player like Quentin Morris go, and it's not to say that Quentin Morris is going to develop into the next stud tight end in the NFL. But if you believe he outperformed OJ Howard, and everybody in the locker room can see he outperformed OJ Howard, and, you know, the financial part of it that you mentioned that you have this guy under control you've you, he's homegrown you've developed him Brandon Bean has always said that players pay attention to who you pay players pay attention to your actions in terms of putting together the team they know by and large who earned spots right and certainly your quarterback knows very well who earned spots like you know, the every man on the roster might not know for sure that Quentin Morris deserves to be there over O.J. Howard, but some important people do, including Josh Allen. And I think that's, you know, a good trait to have as a general manager to be able to say, you know what, this didn't work, you know, and yeah, it was a miss. There's going to be those. But being able to pivot quickly and make sure you're not, they can't afford it. They can't afford to keep a lesser player on the roster just to save a little bit of face. Mm -hmm. You could have afforded that maybe a few years ago when you're finding your way as a general manager and you don't, you know, you want to kind of hold on to guys and and give them a chance so that they can prove you right and so that you don't, you know, look bad. But I don't think that's a concern anymore Mm -hmm. because the concern is getting the best players on the roster to, you know, make a run at the Super Bowl. And, Quentin Morris, you know, is it the difference between them winning a Super Bowl and not? Probably not, but every little decision counts. And I think those guys bring in a little bit more value on special teams in terms of positional flexibility. Uh, You know, it, it made it worth it. And, you know, the contract with O.J. Howard wasn't wasn't yeah. too prohibitive, uh, despite despite $2 million being being a lot of money to most of us.
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, the uh, and and weirdly enough, like it seemed like everyone near the end, of, or at least from a fan perspective, people started to uh, started to get purely on the, on the Quentin Morris train. I think some of the hesitation was about whether or not Tommy Sweeney should be on the team, but uh, over OJ Howard. But when you look at, you know, Sweeney, I thought played, you know, similarly to slightly better than OJ Howard throughout practices this camp. And then I look at a, a couple of instances of, of, you know, signs that the Bills were not ready to move on and, and how much he, he means to the team. When asked about Tommy Sweeney, Ken Dorsey glowed about him and said that he had make took a uh, really substantial strides as both a, a pass catcher and a blocker this year. Of course, Sweeney's in the final year of his deal, so it's not like a, it's not as though he signed for the next several years and he's going to be part of this room for years to come. I mean, they could resign him to a low cost deal, but you know, be it as it may. He is um, he's he's basically in the same situation as O.J. Howard was uh, heading into the the final cuts. But then you you think about like little snippets of of moments throughout camp, and there was this one one day at practice where Tommy Sweeney made this unbelievable over the shoulder catch in the end zone to to end practice, and I mean you you've seen it a million times yourself, Matt when. When like a big play is made, the the entire like offense will go over and like and smack the helmet, and that's that's not too abnormal um, for how that how that happens. But the amount of like celebration and happiness for that dude to make that play from that lingered as as the the practice was ending and winding down like they were just like reveling in it and i think that is a microcosm of how well he is liked in the locker room like i don't know that there's a single person like he he's just he's just a good guy <laughs> honestly more than anything and that, that doesn't mean he should make the the 53 man roster but the locker room component is a humongous thing to Sean McDermott and, and Brandon Bean. They talk about it all the time. They talk about glue guys and and having having the right having the right mix of personalities in, in the locker room. They've said it often about like guys like Isaiah McKenzie, um, Shaq Lawson is another one of those guys that that you know it's just connectors uh, of the locker room, even if they they don't give like huge dividends on the field. And Sweeney is one of those guys. And so that is not like the, oh, he should make the roster because of this. In a tie situation, that gives him the check mark to, to push it forward, to be like, okay, he should be on the roster. Plus, he, split, he can play a little bit of special teams. It's a, I, I, know, I know some people roll their eyes with the whole locker room component, but it is a very real, tangible thing for how the Bills construct their team. And, and trying to find that chemistry for in-season. And, and Tommy Sweeney's a, a really 
important piece to that, I think, that they view him. And they also knew that if they put him on waivers, seeing the, the Giants um, poaching uh, poaching skills of the waiver wire and, and how well that they knew him and the fact that the Giants had a tight end room that consisted of Daniel Bellinger and that was it, Sweeney was gone if, if they put him on waivers. And so I don't think they wanted to risk it. Dave's would have been on FaceTime in, in two seconds. Uh. <laughs> oh, it would have been done. It would have it would have been lights out. Like he would have been. He might have even started for them this year. And and Tommy Sweeney's a Jersey guy. I mean, it just it just would have fit so well. So they knew that if either him or Quentin Morris went on waivers, they were New York Giants. And don't and the Giants, by the way, they only wound up getting one Bills player, uh, which was Nick McLeod. On waivers, but they also put in a uh, a waiver claim for Kingsley Jonathan, their defensive end from this past summer, and they also put it. They got Jack Anderson, who was a Bills draft pick, and they also put in a waiver claim on Daryl Johnson, who was a Bills draft pick from from a time ago. So the Giants were lurking. It was a real threat, and the Bills had to consider that with their decisions. Yeah, I think Tommy Sweeney's an interesting case because, again, probably like Quentin Morris, you know. Is he going to develop into the next game changer at the position? Probably not. But I've always thought of Sweeney as somebody who is quite reliable. And early in his career, I think you could make a case that he was more reliable than Dawson Knox. And, you know, that has, I think, flipped as Dawson Knox has developed and, you know, gotten more consistent. And now, you know, Obviously, given their draft pedigree and, you know, anybody who's watched them knows that Dawson Knox has that potential to be, you know, a game changer at tight end because of his athletic toolkit that Tommy Sweeney just doesn't have. But he was he has been a reliable target since he got here now. And I think Josh Allen, you know, that's part of it. It's not just that they're buddies. It's that on the field when they've needed him, you know, he's been solid and, you know, he can block, he can play teams. There's enough there that clearly I think OJ Howard had to close the gap on some guys that had developed the trust of the quarterback. And, you know, you have to kind of throw the draft position out. You know, OJ Howard has battled some injuries and, Right, he was a. a He's a not the same guy anymore. It is very clear he is not to, even close you know, to the same guy. Take that part of it out of your brain when you're looking at players because it's a name that a lot of people recognize, and you know he did warrant that hype at one point, but it's never he's never been able to put it all together, and I think injuries are a big part of that. So I think that that's you know something that can probably that's a challenge not just for fans that's a challenge for coaches and general managers to be able to block that out and say all right this guy's not first round pick oj howard anymore they didn't spend that first round pick they didn't spend some crazy amount of money on him and it probably can be equally challenging to start to think of guys like tommy sweeney as not seventh round pick Tommy Sweeney right like and not undrafted free agent Quentin Morris like I think that is probably Mm -hmm. as big a challenge as removing the draft pick you know the high draft pick from your your thought process because 
I think you could even see it in the way, you know, they treated Levi Wallace over the years, where it was, yeah, let's try to add somebody else and compete with this guy, you know, constantly. And then eventually letting him walk when uh, I think, you know, he probably would have been mm-hmm. open to coming back. So, but it was hard to, you know, it, it's hard to shed that label when you're a late rounder and, you mm-hmm. know, an undrafted guy. I mean, it can be, can be tricky. It's like, oh, well, that guy was an undrafted free agent. You know, maybe they can, they can find some, you know, you assume that there's somebody with a better athletic skill set or more upside or something when frankly some guys those de- those guys develop into mm-hmm. into better players it's like now tommy sweeney's just an nfl veteran a solid reliable nfl veteran uh, absolutely is he one of the best tight ends in the league no but he's a he's he knows the system he can play teams and your quarterback can count on him so would you have right you know like Five years ago, four mm-hmm. years ago, whatever, and everybody loves him. <laughs> Tommy Sweeney being a better option than OJ Howard would have seemed far fetched, but that's the NFL. I went back and I looked uh, looked up what Brandon Bean said immediately after they they signed OJ Howard, and I think a big reason for them to do it was to take a calculated risk like a buy low sort of thing um because and and the way that he he talked about the signing is funny because it goes back to a lot of the the preconceived notions that a lot of us had here's what he said quote oj really liked him coming out of college what a senior year he had at alabama Really, you saw his straight line speed. Big target, good hands. He had the injury, the Achilles a couple years in Tampa, uh, and obviously they brought Gronk down there, and Brady had that pre-existing relationship. I think all that this is just a chance for a restart for him. There is talent there, and uh, and he and Dawson will be a good pairing. <laughs> so there wasn't like a, hey, we really spotted some things on film last year that we really liked. It was... Brandon Bean's evaluation from way back when and spotting an opportunity to maybe uh, put a guy who had a pedigree into their high-powered passing offense and hopefully reaping the benefits of it. But because that didn't work out, he just wasn't the same guy, Bean's probably like, all right, well, it was worth a shot. (laughs) I think that's basically what it boiled down to. So um, I, I I found it very funny that most of, you know, because you forget all these things that were said before, most of his justification was, "Oh, first round guy. He he had a, he had a great skill set coming into the league, but obviously that has dissipated." Um, I guess we should get into Tre'Davious White and the decision to put him on the physically unable to perform list. The it was not a surprise by any means. The last time you and I chatted, Matt, um, I had brought up the notion that Tredavious has not practiced or has not um, done a a pretty intense workout or a workout at all um, since when I saw him on in like the back corner of the side field at St. John Fisher University on July 29th. Have not seen him. There, there was like a report from ESPN that said it would be sooner rather than later with Tredavious White. That was on August 11th, but you know, 
not seeing him do any workouts when he was basically on display doing workouts through the entire first week of camp to then just it being nothing and still nothing to to where it's now September it it really seemed like that this was the only decision that they they could have have done with him to put him on PUP shut him down for 4 weeks at least um, and allow him to heal properly rather than him trying to force his way back in. Now that now he knows that, all right, another month to get this thing ready and and to go from there. So I, I guess not really a surprise by any means, but it I think now you go into the season knowing that you're going to have to depend on three really inexperienced cornerbacks to, to get you by against teams like the Rams, um, the Ravens, the Dolphins, who have two really good receivers. And that's just the first four weeks. If if the the if they needed to keep him off off the active roster past the first four weeks, then you're gonna start to get him to more teeth of the schedule. But but yeah, I, I I wasn't really surprised by it. I think everyone was kind of expecting it. The Bills kind of admitted they were trying to run out the clock on the Trey situation uh, the week before final cuts. Uh, but I think the bigger conversation is what does the the defense look like now, now that they know that they're not going to have Tredavious White to start the season? Yeah, it seems like it will potentially linger beyond that four-week window. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's not... The, you know, the Bills are in a spot where they need him to be ready and at his best for the stretch run, and doing anything to jeopardize that would have been short-sighted. It's tough to know without knowing exactly where he is physically and whether there was any sort of setback or anything along those lines. Every ACL recovery is not the exact same in terms of because every ACL tear, every major knee surgery is not the exact same. There can be some similar timetables, but, uh, you know, given how late in the season it was, uh, it's not completely abnormal for him to not be ready for the start of the season. Now, the fact that he's not, you know, hasn't been around, hasn't begun practicing or I shouldn't say hasn't been around but hasn't been you know like you said uh the way he was in that first week of training camp Mm -hmm. and has not Mm -hmm. you know been able to get on the field you know it makes you wonder how long it will linger because the longer it lingers the longer it takes him to be that player because I think it's also unrealistic to expect that when he is back he will instantly be the Tredavious White that he was when he got injured uh, you know, you need to build in a little bit of a grace period there, and it puts a ton of pressure absolutely on these young cornerbacks who, you know, if there was a position for this to happen, it's cornerback because Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott have a well-documented history of developing players at that position, and, you know, that's probably why they, they've kept quite a few on the roster, uh, you know, and kept some flexibility uh in the secondary and we'll see you know it they continue to put themselves in positions at cornerback where they're betting on their ability to develop players and you know 
they're betting on their scheme and the safeties and their ability to disguise coverage to make the secondary perform. And I think most of the time those bets have paid off for them. And it's not going to cripple their season, uh, you know, unless Tredavious White, you know, really late into the year still isn't, you know, back to, to who he was. But it just feels like if there is a spot where they can, you know, bank on inexperience a little bit, it's cornerback because of their history with that spot and, you know, what they've been able to do. And the fact that they do have Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer, uh, who help make everybody look better uh, in the secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is the, all. you also have to wonder whether or not Trey White will be the same guy in those first games he comes back. Like if, if he even gets to that point, because there are a lot of times where after an injury that takes that long of a rehab, you're not quite the same guy until the year after. But I guess the the point is, is 75, 80, 85% Tredavious White better than one of Dane Jackson, Kair Elam, or Christian Benford? Yeah, definitely. Um, but that's still, it might not ever be perfect at cornerback this year and the other thing I I kind of remembered you know we've been covering this team for a long time and you and I were both there at the start of the McDermott regime the cornerback play was not great in those first two years like they were putting out guys like Philip Gaines Sharice Wright I mean EJ Gaines was 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 fine when he was actually healthy and in the lineup but like they were they were putting out some some bad stuff out there and and they were they were getting uh burned uh on that per, from that perspective and it wasn't until that they kind of put Levi Wallace in that they found someone that they really liked uh to kind of move forward with enough but they still kept Who trying to Who was the guy that him. took an Uber from uh Chicago I'm pretty sure that was Sharice Wright yeah, that's what, that's who I thought it was. Yeah, uh, that's like the first thing that comes to mind when I think of early days right? Dermot cornerbacks. And Sharice Wright was not great. He was fine, but he was not. No, he was not. He was not good. fine. He was not fine. <laughs> he was occasionally fine. A lot of times, he was not fine. And they they still performed fairly well as a secondary, despite not having perfect cornerback. Right. Right. Once once Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer kind of figured everything out. But they have always and, had that Tredavious crutch on the one side. Yes. That's kind and of not the difference. Having here. that is big. Yeah. Because they they trusted him to go in, and they spent their first draft pick on him, right? Like mm-hmm. they well, Sean McDermott, uh, Brandon Bean wasn't here yet, but th- that was sort of a pillar of their defense. It's like if we have one side locked down, then we can get away with less than stellar play on the other side and I would say they've always had less than stellar play and Levi Wallace helped a bit it was probably the best option they had but they were always trying to get better over there they were Mm -hmm. always trying to you know give him competition and now they're probably going into the season worse at both spots you know Levi Wallace would probably be their number one corner right now if he were still on the team that's true and you know Kair Elam may 
Kyer Elam is not Tredavious White yet. Um, he is not. He's not Tredavious White as a rookie, uh, is what I'm saying. Like he's not plug and play. Now maybe when the lights come on, he's a gamer and it clicks for him. But kind of goes back to that conversation we were having about draft position and making decisions. Like. Christian Benford, we'll see, right? Like, I don't know, a a lot of positive buzz about him during training camp. And at some point, you know, you have to let the best player earn the snaps. Same with Dane Jackson, who doesn't have the draft pedigree that Kair Elam does. So there's enough room for all of them to get time on the field uh, and get important snaps. And it's going to be trial by fire for sure because they have some good receivers on the schedule. And, you know, sure, you. the most important thing is how the secondary looks when it counts most. But we've seen also that, you know, it's nice to have home field advantage in the postseason. It's nice to play your playoff games at home. And... So you can't just completely stumble out of the gates either. You know, you can't just punt away the first part of the season. But they they showed last year that things weren't perfect for the first half of the year, and then they clicked at the right time. And, and that truly is the most important piece. They don't need to panic about what they see from these young corners early on. But – they do need to, you know, be mindful of of what's happening there because when Tredavious White comes back, if he's not immediately Tredavious White, you know, the Tredavious White that they're used to, the responsibility of these young corners is not going to go away. You know, at least one of them is going to need to to be playing starting snaps. So it'll be interesting to see all of them get some run here and see you know, who who emerges as that guy that they can count on, mm-hmm. uh, if anybody, because they're going to have to count on somebody. Um, unless Sharice Wright takes an Uber. And, uh, <laughs> he's ready. And can fill in in a pinch. I don't know where Sharice Wright is these days, but. Oh, he's uh, he's got to be like 36 years old by this time, by this point. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? He's, he's 35 he's now. 35 and. When was the last time he played in the league? Uh, he is he is no longer in the league. By the far. Texans in 2018. So yeah. he's four years removed. Uh, probably not the first guy that they're calling. Yeah. But you know they lost Nick McLeod, and uh, you know they lost an option um, on waivers. We'll see. I I I think it's probably going to be the spot that most people are paying attention to early in the season, and mm-hmm. I do think it it kind of comes back to. A similar conversation we had a few weeks ago, and probably one of the most interesting spots on the roster to me is the defensive line, the front seven, sort of version, what, 5.0 for Mm -hmm. these Bills of trying to rework and get the right combination on the defensive line and out of their pass rush. If you're better there, you can get away with something uh, on the back end, but um, that'll be... You know, that'll be big for this defense, you know, what they look like and what the what the safeties look like. Because, 
you know, they've been injured in training camp, you know, in and out of practice for Micah Hyde. Jordan Poyer didn't practice a ton. He's got the contract thing hanging over his head. They've been able to not only bank on Tredavious White locking down one end of the field, but they've been able to count on having two difference makers at safety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to say that they're, I don't think they're necessarily going to drop off, but, you know, they're starting to show their, their age just in terms of availability. And so now, you know, they need those guys to be at, at the top of their game to, you know, make the rest of this secondary look good. So a lot, a lot goes into it. There's not as many questions on offense. I feel like, um, Mm -hmm. as maybe there are on defense right now. And, you know, fortunately for the bills, that's, that's Sean McDermott's background. That's his calling card. So, you know, scheme wise, you know, he should be able to figure it out, but we'll see. Yeah, I do wonder if from a cornerback perspective, because we're recording this Thursday morning, it's around 9.30 a.m., um, and the Bills still have three practice squad spots remaining. I wonder if maybe they reach out, as we thought they might do in the offseason, and actually bring him on the active roster. I wonder if maybe they reach out and try and get Joe Hayden signed as a you know, just in case sort of thing, because it's a pretty easy transaction to uh, to bring him on the roster if things aren't looking great at cornerback, um, and you know, cut a a Cam Lewis. Um, you know, Cam has done a really nice job, but they've also gotten him through waivers multiple <laughs> multiple times at this point. Of course, none none of those years ever had the Joe Shane Brian Dable Giants, but I think. Uh, I think that would be one of those where where maybe they can they can do that sort of situation. That that's that's one name I've always had my eye on with them. He's super tight with with Von Miller, um, kind of that veteran presence. They they're really lacking that at the cornerback spot right now, outside of what Saran Neal. So um, yeah, that's that's one thing I maybe keep an eye on for for the practice squad. And you brought up the safeties. I thought this summer how well Jaquan Johnson played in all the time that he filled in for either Micah Hyde when when he had that um like that sore hip slash glute area after coming down uh, hard in practice on an interception um and then when Jordan Poyer injured his elbow Jaquan Johnson has been really good this summer preseason uh the the training camp practices you can tell the bills have this like burgeoning optimism about him if i'm the bills seeing what i've seen this past summer i am locking him in because he's on the final year of his rookie deal i'm locking him in on a low cost contract because he is not a starter right now i'm locking him in on a three-year deal today if if i had the option to just because, at worst, core special teams guy, um, you know he's going to be your third safety. But at best, he could be your starting strong safety next year for Jordan Poyer if you decide to move on. Like, he showed those types of flashes to me. So, I don't know. That's that's just food for thought. He's, he's quickly, in my eyes, becoming one of the priorities that, th- that they need to take care of from a, from a re-signing 
standpoint. It's to me, it's Dawson Knox and now Jaquan Johnson, just getting him on on that low cost because that would be such good business. A starting job isn't isn't there for you right now. There's still kind of this unknown factor as to whether or not Jordan Poyer is going to be on the team next year, and he's definitely going to start this year as long as he's on the roster or as long as he's healthy. Um, so I I view this as a humongous opportunity one way or the other. But but yeah, that I. That's I just wanted to throw then that in there about Jaquan Johnson. Um, You've oh, did long you have been the uh, the president of the Jaquan Johnson fan club. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, you know me. He has he has been flashing since his rookie season. Like the all these players remember this stuff. Um, you talk to anyone that was there in. Any player that was there in, gosh, what what's this year? 2020, so 2019. In, in 18, his rookie season, and everyone remembers that that toe-tapping interception along the sideline against the Jets in Week 17 that was called back due to a, due to a penalty. I think it was Kurt Coleman back then who, who took the penalty. Um, but, like, it might have been somebody different. I'm, I might be getting my, my veteran years mistaken. But everyone remembers that, and every time he gets in the lineup, he he shows these shows these flashes. And you know, I think the Bills kind of um, they fired him up this past off season because in March they said Demar Hamlin might be catching Jaquan Johnson, and it's going to be an interesting thing to see how it shakes out. And Jaquan has just completely taken over that number three role, core special teams guy. I mean, it's just to me, it's. It's a no-brainer to to get him locked in for a few more years here, just to just to see how things develop. There's no guarantee at the safety position past uh, past 2023, which is when Micah Hyde's deal runs up. Don't you want to give yourself a little bit of a, uh, I guess, of some something to hang your hat on that you've been developing for several years that has some starting potential? That's just. Just, just food for thought. That's all. Um, all right. How about just like very, uh, maybe not general, but like strengths and weaknesses. Uh, when you look at this fifty-three man roster, you emo- you are most impressed by this and least impressed by this. And if it's the least impressed, is the cornerback situation. So be it. We don't have to go into it too deeply. But what what have you? What do you think are you're most impressed by, and what are you least impressed by? I think the the options they have across the board on offense, uh, it's a pretty impressive group. Uh, you know, quarterback notwithstanding, you know, that's the obvious answer. Uh, Josh Allen's the most impressive player on the roster. But the way they have set themselves up at receiver with a mix of players that they develop themselves – players they added from the outside, obviously led by Stephon Diggs. What they get out of Gabriel Davis and Isaiah McKenzie, I think will be really, you know, fascinating to see early on. The guys that have sort of that established rapport with Josh Allen, this could be a pretty good year for Isaiah McKenzie, I feel like. It's Mm -hmm. one of those situations, again, where it's like finally you have to ignore – how you acquired him and just recognize that this guy could be a bit of a difference maker. And 
the game he had against the Patriots at the end of the season showed the way Josh Allen feels about him, you know, throwing, you know, trusting him the way that he did. And, you know, I think Brian Dable was a big fan uh, and loved to have, you know, the option to move him around the offense. So this is a good group of receivers. It's, you know, they have some options behind those top three, but I'm really interested to see what it all looks like when those three come together. They're, they're deep at running back uh, on paper. We'll see again how that all shakes out. You talking RB1 right now? You know, I think like I don't know we'll if everyone see, remembers right? the bit. I don't. So it, it throughout training camp, every time Zach Moss would line up in the backfield with Josh Allen, I would look over at all the other reporters and say RB one as a as kind of a joke. But he he is going to play this year, I think. But be it as may, go on. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, you. What they get out of those guys, how they use the running backs, will be interesting. How how it all fits together. It's probably you know, something that is causing headaches for those who play fantasy football, figuring out where to take these guys. But it feels like the most talent they've had in the backfield in quite a few years because of the addition of James Cook and what he could bring to the table. So, you know, those are are some spots that stand out as positives. We mentioned cornerback uh, as a potential problem area, at least early on while those guys figure things out. And then I think the two spot, you know, what they are on both lines could be telling of who they become as a football team. We mentioned the pass rush, the defensive line. Looks like perhaps they've found some answers there, but, you know, how that looks when the lights come on, uh, you know, will be the real story. And then a little bit of a, a shuffle on the offensive line, bringing in some new pieces and, you know, maybe changing how they play a little bit, a new offensive line coach. When you have a franchise quarterback, that becomes a big storyline is how are you going to protect them? And, you know, that can help form the identity of your team if you're able to, you know, run the football uh, effectively when you need to. So both lines, I think, will be interesting to watch early on because I do think those are hard spots to get a full picture of during the preseason and training camp because there's a different intensity that happens uh, when the games matter, when the reps are really, you know, uh, on both sides as high intensity, best on best. So we'll see. Um, But they've got, they've at least recognized the need to make some changes at both spots and how those, how those all play out, I think will, uh, you know, will help tell the story of, of what they can become. It's amazing to me um, how close Isaiah McKenzie's career was to being not done, but like written um, after he got uh, was a healthy scratch um, against the Saints uh, around the in the Thanksgiving game. You know, it seemed like that they had kind of pushed forward with Marquez Stevenson being Marquez Stevenson, sorry, um, of of him being their their return guy, but for him to take advantage of just this crazy opportunity when both Gabriel Davis and Cole Beasley had COVID 
in the week of the Patriots game and to have this like watershed game. It's just, and now transitioning that into being uh, more than likely and most likely, probably definitely, the starting slot receiver for a Super Bowl contending team is just kind of ridiculous when you sit back and think about it. Um, so, so yeah, that uh, that has been quite the revelation for them, and he's been he's looked really good throughout the summer. And you you brought up the running back situation; they have a lot of talent, a lot of guys that do a little bit of different things. I think if you I think the guy that has the most intriguing skill set is Cook, and I do, and I am starting to wonder if maybe they've been sandbagging us a little bit about what his role could be um, in this offense. You know, maybe some two running back stuff where he's split out wide. Uh, maybe he'll get a few more carries than we're expecting. I also think Zach Moss is going to have a. A pretty worthwhile role it's just it's really going to be intriguing to see how they they do this thing in the, in the first in the first week of the season I think that it is like I have to go through and do the inactives but I think it's likely that all three of those guys will be active and they've normally gone with only two running backs on game day but I think this year that's going to shift because they've really liked what they've seen from Moss obviously they trust Singletary and James Cook is the shiny new toy so, yeah, that one, I, the Cook thing is, like, one of the biggest question marks I have heading into the season. Because we don't know exactly how they're going to use him. And I think they're going to, uh, he might be one of those guys that you're like, well, maybe we should have saw this coming a little bit more. I don't think he's going to be, like, starter every single down, every, that sort of thing. But, like, on a, on a team that's going to pass the ball a bunch and him being the best pass catching option and to get you some yards after the catch that's it, it's it's at least worth um, talking about here um, so that's that'll be something to keep an eye on i think for me the biggest weakness uh, of this roster and it's like small potatoes when considering that it's we're talking backups here uh, you know the cornerbacks we we discuss pretty pretty clearly but you mentioned the offensive line, how they've been doing some shuffling around. I think the reserve interior offensive line is uh, leaves a lot to be desired. They traded away Cody Ford, and it's it's not it's not as though like oh they traded away Cody Ford and they left themselves razor thin here. Like he he wasn't he wasn't that great this summer. Like he had a really good preseason game against the Broncos. It helped facilitate a trade to the Cardinals. You get a fifth round pick uh, rather than it being a completely sunk cost at that point. You you at least get something out of it. Still a bad pick. Brandon Bean owned up to it. I'm glad uh, that he wasn't doing like a victory lap about getting a fifth round pick for it. I mean it was a second round pick that they traded up for. Should have been way better than it was. But Cody Ford gone, and so now. In the uh, when you look at their reserve interior depth, they cut Greg Mance, brought him back to the practice squad. What they have there now is either Greg Van Roten, who played for the Jets last year and not very well, did not have a strong summer from what I saw, or Bobby Hart or Tommy Doyle. Like, there's some. 
it's not great if one of those starting five go down. If Mitch Morse ends up getting an injury, Ryan Bates is going to have to kick inside, and then one of Bobby Hart, Tommy Doyle, or, or oh, I'm sorry, David, David Quesenberry is in there too, or Greg Van Roten is getting the start. These are journeymen outside of Doyle. These are journeymen players who have not looked great in their previous stops. So that's just a, a slight area for concern here and one that could become an issue because offensive line injuries always pop up during a season. So that's that's the one area that I'm looking at like, yeah, they are they could be in tough shape there if if things don't break correctly. But like you said, outside of that and maybe the cornerback spot, this is a crazy talented roster. The defensive line looks great. Um quarterback is obviously a strength. The the skill position players look good. Linebackers, no complaints there. They've they have a really star, uh, strong starting duo. The safeties are two of one of the best starting duos in the league. Like this is a crazy talented roster. But if things happen with some injuries with that line, just keep an eye out that this could become more of a situation moving forward. Yeah, offensive line, it seems like there are more teams that have questions there entering the season than there are uh, who are in the opposite spot, right? I mean, it's it it's a conversation around the league every year in terms of depth and being able to withstand injuries. And it's been a bit of an issue for the Bills you know, over the last couple of years, I think it was a problem in the AFC championship game a couple of years ago. And, you know, it was a problem for them at times last year. So again, they're, they've made some moves that they're, you know, they're trying to do things a little bit differently. They, you know, they have a new offensive line coach and brought in a few veterans, how it all fits together, I, I think remains to be seen. And like you said, the, the ability to withstand injuries at that spot will be a legit question. Now they've got the type of quarterback who can help cover some of that up, but still when you've invested what you've invested in Josh Allen and it's pretty well established that he is what makes you a Super Bowl contender, that becomes the very next priority is, is keeping him upright, keeping him healthy. So, uh, you know, having not gotten a, a super close look at those guys in training camp. And like I said, wanting more to see the, the high intensity regular season product. Uh, you know, I think that's a, a to be determined spot on this roster for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I think we've exhausted some of the roster talk, but the, uh, you know, do you seeing as how, you are covering the other professional sports team in in Buffalo uh, starting this season and already doing a great job of it, might I add. So if you haven't yet gone and saw um, Mr. Fairburn's coverage of the Sabres yet, head over to theathletic.com and uh, subscribe to read all his stuff. But they just did a pretty big freaking deal this, um, this past week in getting Tage Thompson to sign uh, on a seven-year extension for what was it like 50 mil or something like that what what did you make of the deal and and what what does he kind of mean to the roster and, and how has he kind of developed yeah seven years 50 million not a drop in the bucket uh <laughs> no it's no oj years. howard no we're not talking small potatoes two million here uh 7.1 <laughs> million cap hit 
off of sort of one year of production, a uh, little bit of a gamble uh, to be to be certain, but the appropriate risk. It's interesting figuring out the NHL contract landscape. And, you know, I think you saw a lot this summer, guys that got pushed to the brink of restricted free agency or unrestricted free agency, being able to, you know, call their shots a little bit, maybe force their way out of some situations and, you know, end up as, as players that got traded. And I think it was important, you know, despite the risk that the Sabres are inheriting by banking on one year of production, they are eliminating the risk of getting to that point with Tage Thompson. And when you're in the position that the Sabres are, much like the Bills at the beginning of their rebuild, you're not the most attractive free agent destination unless you're willing to overpay. And Kevin Adams has talked a lot about wanting players who want to be in Buffalo, who want to be Sabres. And so when you have one of those players that you've developed on your own uh, and who has been sort of an example to everybody else of, of what can happen when you put put in the work and buy into, you know, what Don Granado is preaching. I, I, I don't have a problem with rewarding that player a little bit early in hopes that if the salary cap goes up and a few other guys sign and he continues this production, this probably would have been more like eight or nine million a year potentially. So I think it's a, a risk worth taking, even though he really only had one, one year of production. If you think about it, you know, the, the Bills extended Josh Allen based on, you know, one year of elite production. And different story because, you know, Josh Allen was a top 10 pick. He's a quarterback. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different parameters that go into that. But I felt at the time that they made that deal that they were also, without much choice, banking on that continuing and him getting better. And the Sabres had to do a little something similar here. You could wait, but then if he goes out and, you know, stays on the pace that he had last year when, you know, he scored 38 goals, 28 of which came in the, the 50 games that Alex Tuck played, you know, and, you know, there are some factors. He moved to center. He's he's a six foot seven center. I mean, he there's not a lot of players like him. There haven't been a lot of players like him. So the idea that he could get even better is also uh, in the equation here. So, yeah, it was, uh, I think, a worthwhile roll of the dice and something that, you know, Don Granado certainly seems pretty thrilled about. So a guy that they can, once they cleared the way for him with the Jack Eichel trade, it seemed like he really... He really blossomed so it'd be fun to watch he's a fun player to watch because there's just not a lot of players that big playing mm-hmm. up front uh there's not a lot of players that big period six foot seven is it's quite large for for a hockey player uh particularly one who's playing center yeah no doubt um the the length of contracts in the nhl continues to kind of stupefy me like we see seven year extension and but I always think of like I don't know, just these contracts that go horribly wrong and you're just they're just there for the foreseeable future <laughs> because um because you're like, Oh yeah, this is a great idea. Let's let's lock in this value for this amount of time and then it 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 kind of uh withers on you by the end of it. So that that is one of like i I think the NHL is pretty unique in how they dole out these 
maybe baseball does it too, but like how they dole out these super long-term deals um, just to just to try and get these guys on the dotted line. And these and these things are pretty much guaranteed too. So it it is it is a, a major commitment once they do it. Yeah, in seven years, Tage Thompson's twenty-four. You know, the the career arc in hockey is a, is different than football in that, you know, certainly seven years is practically a football career for most people. Uh, it's a long one for, you know, longer than average, uh, you know, certainly. And even for your best players, seven years is, is a lot in football at most positions. Quarterback maybe being the exception that you can stretch things a bit. And at 24 already, a little bit of a late bloomer uh, by hockey standards, and will be, you know, 30 years old really when he's playing the final year of this deal, assuming he plays it all the way through. So that's the the risk that you take to, you know, hopefully get ahead of. And they have so much cap space to work with right now. So, you know, being able to take advantage of that to an extent and make sure he would have been with another year of production quite sought after now the the risk is what if what if it dips a little bit but uh that's that's the risk a lot of people you know a lot of teams have to take and across sports right is that you're you're kind of hoping that you're getting you're paying for what's to come and i think they're more paying for what's to come here with, with tage thompson so we'll see i, I think don granado unlocked something in in this guy and certainly sees a little bit more as well. So a good, like we talked about earlier in this episode where Brandon Bean has said, you know, guys pay attention to who you pay. Mm -hmm. This, this matters. It's not like they went out and overpaid somebody from outside the building uh, to a huge deal that, that they may come to regret a guy that's, you know, maybe already had his best years. This is a guy that they think still, still has his best years to come and he better because he's got a, he's got a nice little, nice little cap hit and quite a lengthy deal. Mm -hmm, For sure. Um, And quickly before we, uh, we end the show, you just uh, had a, had a really uh, an in-depth article that, that you just posted and that you've been working a while on now. So um, I guess, Throw throw the uh, throw the old tease out to the to the yeah, people. Yeah, was sort of a two parter uh, over the last couple of weeks on, you know, the, the Sabers hired Sam Ventura to head up their analytics department uh, a little over a year ago. So he was sort of involved in the 2021 draft, but really became heavily involved in the 2022 draft process, and so spoke with him, uh, you know. I think it might have been last month at the, or earlier this month and then spoke to Jerry Fortin the director of amateur scouting for the Sabres about how they've incorporated analytics into the draft process which is you know been a fascination of mine since switching beats because it's different than football in a lot of ways you know in football I think you know you have all these guys that are playing essentially in one league that you're scouting. So it's a bit easier, though maybe not super common, to use statistical models on college production and try to extrapolate that into what these guys will be in the NFL. 
the combine provides some good clues, benchmarks, uh, you know, data points in terms of what physical skill sets translate. So in football, you have a bit more of a straightforward evaluation process, I feel like. And in hockey, with these guys playing in so many different leagues and, you know, you're, you're these guys are 17, 18 years old when you're drafting them and you're trying to figure out what a guy does at 17, 18 that's going to translate to what he'll look like at 21, 22. And Sam Ventura, who came from the Penguins and, and had quite a bit of success uh, in Pittsburgh, said that the, his staff probably spent 90% of their efforts this year on building draft models, which is really interesting because you know that's a significant chunk of your resources obviously when you have three first round picks and 11 picks total uh dedicating some of your you know a good chunk of your time to the draft makes sense but the way that you know jerry fortin speaks about uh the work that they're doing the open-mindedness to expand that approach and you know get yourself a wider a wider range of information on more players um it's fascinating how much of an edge does it give them how much will it impact their success you know that's to be determined years down the road somebody asked in the in our sabers mailbag this week you know outside of owen power who drafted in the last couple of years might have a chance to make the team there might not be anybody it might just be owen power from the last two drafts that's the big difference in in hockey and football is you know there's much more patience required before you judge what's happening, but it's clear that they've been willing to adjust their their process and uh, you know tweak some things and incorporate more more data and you know more input from from that end of things. So I'm curious to see how it plays out. It's it cool to get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of what they were what they're trying to do and and how they're trying to adapt maybe uh you know better late than never i guess but um it seems like they've really beefed up that side of their operation yeah super interesting stuff because it's it's long been a buzz term and it's it's cool to hear about the implementation of of different different strategies since since uh ventura has come on board um all right so if you want to read that in full um, you can find it over at The Athletic. Right now, if you go to theathletic.com slash the Buffalo Beat, uh, I'm looking at it right now. You can get it for, you can get a subscription for $1 per month. It's a special we're running right now. So get in on it if you haven't yet. Theathletic.com slash the Buffalo Beat, a subscription for, to not just Buffalo related content, but everything you could want on The Athletic, uh, any sport you may follow, uh, any team you may follow. Uh, we've we've got coverage of it. Um, again, that's $1 per month at theathletic.com slash the Buffalo Beat. All right, Matthew Fairburn. Um, thanks so much for doing this roster redux with us. And, you know, it's uh, let's we're, we're going to be getting into the to game reps here pretty soon. And a, a weird week coming up because it's a Thursday game, but we're going to get some game reps here. Yeah, we're, we're what, a week wild. away as we're recording this from yeah. you being in Los Angeles for the season kickoff so uh fast approaching uh buckle up <laughs> buckle up indeed i uh yeah i i looked at my my flight information and it's like check in in 
five day, four or five days. I'm like, oh God, we're here. <laughs> this is this is happening. Um, so yeah, we're looking forward to that. And of course, the Bills and Rams kicking off the season. All right, so that'll do it for us. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Buffalo Beat. Uh, and next up, game week after a nice little Labor Day weekend off for the most part. Um, the Bills will have a game on Thursday, September 8th. And uh, we'll, we'll be sure to check in before and after both those games. So for Matthew Fairburn, my name is Joe Pascalia. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will talk to you next time. See you then.